The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Master and Commander, Far Side of the World, where we will discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in this 2003 movie. And joining me today on the panel are Thomas Sanerho. Hey, Thomas. Hey, Dom. It's good to be here. And Jack Berzini. Hey, Jack. Hey, Dom. Uh, I should say, ahoy! <laughs> uh, folks, remember to like the Secrets of Movies and TV Shows on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Media. Be sure to retweet it on Twitter, where we're at SQPN, and be sure to send us comments and leave uh, feedback online wherever you find us. I want to tell you about another show on the network that I'm sure you'll enjoy. Uh, we have StarQuest produces a show called The Secrets of Doctor Who where Jimmy Aiken, Father Corey Stiga, and I talk about Doctor Who in both the classic, starting in 1963 up through 1989, and the new, the 2005 to present day Doctor Who, plus uh, audible uh, audiobooks versions and all the other media that it came in. So check it out. We've been doing over uh, 200, I think it's so uh, up to almost 200 episodes now. I can't remember exactly how many we've done, but we've been doing uh, the show for over seven years now, where we're talking about Doctor Who. So Lots of Doctor Who to talk about. And if you enjoy Doctor Who at all, this is definitely for you. So check it out at sqpn.com slash Doctor Who or wherever you find fine podcasts. So let me give a quick recap of what happens in the movie in case you're not familiar with it. Uh, if you haven't watched the movie, I suggest you watch the movie first and then listen to the podcast because we're going to spoil it for you. Mm-hmm. Would you believe my wife had not seen this movie? I like. <laughs> Might have I, I had no idea. I was yeah. surprised. <laughs> Jack was the same. You said your wife hadn't seen it either. Yeah, no, she watched it for the first time last night. Yeah, my wife had read the books and we had seen the movie with me before, so we she was uh, well versed in it uh, to, uh, herself. But let me give a quick recap. And again, there are spoilers, there are twists and turns in the story, so you'll hear them if you if you keep listening. But uh, here it goes. Uh, it is the age of sail in the early 19th century, and the British Empire is holding back the inevitable tide of. Napoleon's conquest over Europe and eventual impending invasion of England. Jack Aubrey is a British naval captain aboard the HMS Surprise, His Majesty's ship, with orders to hunt down the French privateer Archeron, going from the South Atlantic around the southern end of South America and into the Pacific to, uh, to the Galapagos Islands. Joining him aboard ship is his best friend, Stephen Matterin, a landlubber, half Spanish, half Irish Catholic surgeon who is Aubrey's friend and is also a natural philosopher or naturalist as well. That's kind of a recap, but not really. I mean, it's kind of, <laughs> there's a lot that happens, but and we'll yes. talk about it as we get through. But, uh, but well, uh, I have to say about this movie, it's one of those movies where you watch it and you really get a feel for the way that a book about the age of sale works, which is mm-hmm. it's action packed. It's, it's exciting. And a majority of the movie, nothing's happening. <laughs> Right, right. (laughs) There's no major combats except for at the very beginning and the very end. (laughs) Well, in fact, that was one of my things I was going to say about the pacing of this movie is there's long, slow moments of quiet. Just things are happening. Mm -hmm. Sailors are working or the ship is sailing or whatever, or even becalmed. And then punctuated by intense violence. Like Mm -hmm. 
and and that kind of it, if nothing else the 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 breadth of this movie really gives you a sense of this is what life at sea was like long periods of monotonous duty you know the the, the uh, ship's officers having getting drunk at dinner mm-hmm. <laughs> and singing and you know playing music and and then short periods of intense violence battle uh so yeah that's a good point like i said it's a 2003 movie it was directed by peter ware stars uh russell crowe and paul bettany uh based on the the series of books by patrick o'brien the uh, fans called the arbory matterin series 20 complete novels plus a 21st unfinished novel published posthumously uh and so i've read all of the books uh, uh thomas have you read the books too Yes, but Jack, you said that you hadn't, right? I have not read them, no. Okay, so it'll be interesting to hear the different points of view. I'd read the books before I saw the movie. Mm -hmm. Same with you, Thomas. Okay, so I came into the books with a particular, I mean, into the movie with a particular point of view toward the the story and the book. And this is this is also one of my favorite uh, genre areas of fiction. So I've read all of the C.S. Forrester, Horatio Hornblower series. Love Naomi Novik's take on it, where there are dragons and yes. ships. So, yes, uh, yeah, I definitely love this this era of fiction. Nice. This, yeah, the, the Temeraire series was fantastic. Uh, a, a really great riff on the the Napoleonic Wars uh, with dragons. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, before I um, before I get into the story, I wanted to tell a little personal anecdote that of the ship that that stars as the hms surprise in this movie so they there's a real ship a real sailing ship that they use for this especially the shots at sea they also built an exact replica in a giant ocean tank on land for the some of the uh, storm and uh, battle scenes um but the real ship was was a ship called the hms rose they've actually since renamed her surprise and she's been uh she's uh based out of san diego i think it is but before the movie, she was based in Rhode Island and she was called the HMS Rose. And I saw her one morning very early when I was living in Salem, Massachusetts. I was walking down by the harbor and there she was, this beautiful, you know, square rigged uh, sloop. I think it's sloop. And I, I, I can I have a hard time keeping some of the, the exact terminology right. But she's a square rigged vessel and just beautifully up by the pier and I like near dawn. And so I went and grabbed my camera film camera at the time and it came down and took a whole bunch of pictures. And just, I was so enamored of this, of this ship. She's just so beautiful. And I've always loved the sailing ships and the, the, these, the tall ships. I remember going to see them when I was a kid in Boston Harbor during op sale 76, which is one of the first tall ship gatherings uh, where they bring the ships from all over the world. So uh, I just had to share Like, so for me, this sort of thing is just hits all the buttons. And in fact, mm-hmm. this is, is one of my favorite movies, Mastering Commander. Um, yeah. It's right up there for me. Definitely up there. And it is a brig, not a sloop. Thank you. Thank you for, for <laughs> checking, checking it out for me. Um, so one of the things I want to, uh, well, first, let me just get your impression, your overall impression uh, of this movie before we get started. I've given mine about how much I love it. Uh, how about you, Jack? What is your overall impression of this movie to begin with? Um, something I really like about this movie is that, and this is more of a retroactive look at it based on how movies, like how Hollywood has changed since this movie came out, is that it's part of a, like it's based on a 20 book series of novels 
but you don't need any other context going into this movie. Like you get the little yeah. opening that, you know, you know about the Napoleonic Wars, but the premise is really, really simple. And I like that. It's just, they're on this boat and they're trying to get this boat and you don't need to know any of the background. Really. The movie informs you about what's going on. And it's not like, like so many, like, I feel like if this was made nowadays, it would have been part of like a multiverse kind of thing that there's like a cinematic <laughs> yeah. universe is mm-hmm. how that would have been. And right. I like being able to just go and watch a movie and not have to think, oh, have I seen the other six movies that tie right. into this movie? <laughs> and is this movie just a transitional movie to the next in the series? Right. So right. I like that it's just self-contained and it's a good, solid story. Yeah. Tom? Which I would I would love 20 more of these. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I would seriously watch 20 more of these. But I, I agree with you. I, it is... It, it it does what it needs to do from mm-hmm. beginning to end without uh, without bothering to over explain itself. It doesn't right. need to, you know, and, and it and it takes itself very seriously in that. I, all the actors give fun, like every single actor on the screen gives a phenomenal performance. Oh, yeah. And just buys into the world wholeheartedly, uh, really sells their character and what their character is about. And it uh, it, it fits the themes of the book like they. T- pick all 20 books and condensed it down into what are the best scenes that really encapsulate who Aubrey is, what like yeah. she is like, uh, and, and they put it all on the screen all at once. And it just, it sailed perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> nice fun. <laughs> well, and I will agree. Like it, 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 it's nice that it's a self-contained story. Although if someone wanted to do a streaming series, based on mm-hmm. the Aubrey Matterman mm-hmm. books, mm-hmm. I would not be opposed to that. Let me just throw that out there. <laughs> well, if anyone's interested, it, it, it ran a long time ago, but there was a Horatio Hornblower series. Oh, yeah. That was, uh, we he, own that. Ian Grufford was the main, <laughs> main actor, yeah. And yeah. It was, it's phenomenal. And this is why I was so stunned that my wife had not seen this movie, because we watched every single one of those. We watched all of these other, like, Age of Sale movies and, or, <laughs> or TV shows and things that had come out. And I'm like... How have you not seen Master Commander? <laughs> have you not seen the best one of all? Yeah, right. that, yes. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So uh, one of the things I wanted to you talk about the acting is um, top to bottom is so good. And I, I wanted to mention, like, one of the things that struck me that the movie did for me that, I don't know, the, the books tell you this, but you, to see it on screen, the officers are so young. That's one mm-hmm. of the things that really strikes me. And it's this is true to the, to the reality is that, you know, so much of the officers on this crew. And in fact, I think in the in the books, Jack Aubrey is under under 30 in command of this ship mm-hmm. in the in the, you know, the, the early books. Uh, I mean, it's such a like the a lot of the sailors were older, old salts, but the officers were generally they started them at, you know, at sea at 11 and 12 as midshipmen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by the time they were 16 or 17, they were lieutenants. You know, it's just and and that comes out in this, which is really good. And in fact, the age becomes an important issue for one of the young officers because he is not not all that competent and has grown to be older, an old lieutenant. And uh, mm-hmm. which actually is, a again, an element from the books that the, that came up. Um, I so think I one thought of my that favorite was scenes in the in the movie is when uh, when. Matron is talking about the young Lord Blakely and, yes. uh, you know, and he says, well, you know, his father will, his father will understand if we have to take his arm. And, and uh, the response from Aubrey is, oh, his father would understand if I had to lash him. It's, it's his mother yeah. I'm worried about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and right. Uh, he's Lord Blakeney. He's a, uh, he's uh, aristocracy. Whereas 
Jack is not and you know, right. none of the others are. So he's got, it's an interesting look at the class position within the, the higher two different hierarchies within, you know, the Navy versus, you know, the, the ranking of society and aristocracy. Mm-hmm. So that was really, yeah, that was interesting. Um, and in fact, the, it's the, that gives the, the director an opportunity, by the way, the, the youth of some of these officers to explain stuff, nautical terms or stuff having to do mm-hmm. with battle seats to the audience by explaining it to them or to, mm-hmm. to uh, Stephen Matterin, who is, like I said, a landlubber. So uh, the, those the very convenient characters for explaining stuff that needs to be explained to the audience. I thought that was really good, too. Um, so. We have this, you mentioned this first battle. So the, the, the movie is book, really bookended by these battles. And they have this first battle in the fog, which is just so great. And the, you know, the ship comes out of the fog. And, it, and the, the violence of action just so suddenly, just, it just comes out of nowhere, mm-hmm. uh, almost literally. And it establishes, this, in the battle, it establishes what we need to know about the personalities involved. We see Jack as a decisive captain who is a master of his own ship and um who you know is a lucky jack you know uh we the different officers like um oh i'm gonna i'm gonna need to remember all the names i forgot to write them all down i pulled um, up imdb just for that reason <laughs> yeah exactly you should do that the the one who uh that i was talking about before the lieutenant who is um too old to be a lieutenant still hollum his indecisiveness and inability to act when the the moment called for it uh, and it was the other the other midshipman who took took charge for him. You, know, you see all of these personalities, and then you have the French captain who we never see until the end. We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> but we you, in it, the the French uh, you know ship is this cipher. It's this it's a thing. It's dehumanized. It's just this monster that attacks out of the out of the fog out of the this comes from the sea and attacks and it's i just love how they establish so quickly all of these things it's so great yeah and it's it's really neat that um they get the the whole feel of the age of sail right as well as far as from all of the readings that i've done it, it definitely nails that concept that things happen very quickly uh but then it also it leaves out some of the important uh uh, maneuvering that happens which is th- that first action happens very quickly but it really would have been a longer period of time so it would have been like you know a 15 to 20 minute uh period of them combating each other with the ships turning and things like that but they cut it in such a way that you see the action happen and then you experience that movement much more quickly than it would have been in real life which is is good in this case because you need to kind of progress with the story past that point. And I think the uh, the self the way it's the story is completely self contained just on the surprise. Like you don't get any characters from the French side, so there's no like you know you're seeing two different perspectives back and forth. I really like uh I like how they do that because it it gives you that feeling of isolation that they had. Like they were cut off from everything. It's not like they could you know send a send a telegram even like. They're completely cut off, and this it's like its own right. little world. Yeah, and then and they're also very good about talking about the other ship. It's not the other mm-hmm. ship's crew. It's not the other captain in most cases. It's the other ship and what she's going to be doing. Right. So I also want to mention another key thing that happens that that is a important element to the whole 
uh, movie, which is the music. And the music is surprisingly a key to also the books. Jack and Steven in the books, they the whole thing starts with them meeting at a concert. And uh, it, was, it was a funny interaction between them, right? Yeah, the the Maturin doesn't like the way he's keeping time. <laughs> yes, if Jack is something is keeping time, just stop. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and uh, so and and a big part of the books is that they play music together on board ship. And mm-hmm. one of the things you expect from a a, a movie about a, a warship at sea is like stirring, you know, G- John Williams esque music, and you get some conventional soundtrack music, but you also get a lot of this beautiful. Uh, chamber music, orchestral mm-hmm. music for cello and violin, uh, Baccarini, and you know that, this sort of stuff. And in, in fact, I have the soundtracks. I bought the soundtracks years ago. This actually couple it was on a couple different discs. Um, it's called Dinner with the Captain. So you had the soundtrack itself, but then oh, there was cool. Supplemental, which had all of the sup the uh, the orchestral and classical music, and uh, it was really great. But it 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 lends this air to it in, in some scenes, which is just soaring and or mm-hmm. or uh fun like a, a day at sea in the sunshine with the wind blowing through the sails like it's just an amazing thing you know and and i just i love the music i don't know how, how you guys felt about the feel about it but as mr killig would point out you can't can't dance to any of it so that's <laughs> yes. so good <laughs> <laughs> which you can't dance to it <clears throat> killig is one of my favorite characters i have to say um, yeah, um, no, yeah, the music is definitely, I think, a big part of what sets this movie apart from other similar movies is it's got that unique feel and it's like really, really beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it it is. It's a uh, it, yeah, it just it and it lends a layer of depth to the characters, too. You know, he's not mm-hmm. just a sea captain. He's he's there's more to him than that, which is uh, was pretty, pretty good. And I think it ties into that speech that he gives them before they uh, attack the French vessel when in the end, when he says, this is England, you know, England is under attack and and this is England. And that's kind of it's their own little microcosm, their own little world that they're living in. Right, right. Wherever this ship goes, that is it, it. You know, wherever the flag of England flies, this, you know, this ship is England for that purpose. And so defend your country while defending, you know, you defend this ship. Uh, so yeah, that was that was a really interesting uh, point of view there. Uh, you know the, the, that speech. The um, after that first battle, it's very it's interesting. Very early on, uh, Lord Blakeney gets injured and has to have the amputation. And I, there was this really nice moment between uh, Jack and Blakeney in the uh, in the surgeons uh, uh, in the you know the the sick bay where Jack gives Blakeney a book about Nelson. From mm-hmm. you know, the the hero of Trafalgar, Nel. In for those who don't know, Nelson is the uber hero of of uh, British naval history. He is the you know was the greatest and died tragically. Uh, you know it, 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 at the height of his heroism. And one of the things they, like they don't point out, but they kind of show you. Nelson also lost an arm in battle, and so right. Jack was trying to. It shows that the captain could be as much of a father figure to these young men, as kind of was mentioned before, as he is, you know, a, a captain and a teacher and, you know, a superior officer. But he was also kind of a father to them as well. And I, I really liked how they showed that. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I thought the movie did such a good job at that I was really not expecting it to be able to was the caring about the characters so that 
when some of them die inevitably in the battle, you mm-hmm. really feel it. It's a punch in the gut. And then that it, that final moment when uh, when Aubrey turns over the command of the Akron to uh, to Pullings, it's yeah. you you want to cheer. And it's, I mean, Pullings is on the screen maybe maybe twenty minutes total. <laughs> over yes, of course, yeah. in the whole movie, but you still really feel like he's an important figure, and you you cheer for him, and and such a good fortune for him. And I think Peter Weir, um, he does this in his other movies too. Like he's fantastic at like telling, showing and not telling and also conveying mm-hmm. so much without like giving you like big long monologues or voiceovers or things like that. Like he's, he tells you so much in these scenes, like they're so densely packed with characters and information that even though like the movie feels shorter than it actually is, I feel like because of the pacing, but it just has so much packed into it. Right. Right. My four-year-old who was watching this when the movie was over, he's like, that's it? Yeah. It's done? Watch that whole movie, buddy. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It was over two hours. You know, and you're right, Jackie, like how Peter Weir manages to make us care about these characters and imbue in them this life, this more than is on the screen, this relationships that are greater than what's on the screen. You really see it in the characters by the end of this movie and just lots of little subtle things. Like one of the, one of the big themes from the books is how Jack, um, Jack is a good, good guy with big flaws, big character flaws. Mm -hmm. And one of them is he loves his wife, Sophie, but isn't exactly faithful to her in both heart, mind and body throughout the series. Let's just say it. Mm -hmm. Um, And, he conveys all of that in a very brief scene where you see he's written a letter to Sophie and then he's standing at the rail when they're in Brazil and the, uh, the natives are, are selling stuff to the ship. And he sort of stares at this young native girl who smiles at him and not a word is spoken. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, you know, leave the ship to go have a dalliance or something. It's just implied. And you see it all there in that brief moment. And it is so well done that you don't need to see any more to understand something about Jack Arby's character. Mm-hmm. It was really well done. Very much so. Um, I agree. And and I think like in, in that scene, too, the only reason he's broken away from that is because someone says, put that woman down. Yeah, <laughs> One yes, of the other yes. sailors. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, that's the other thing is the humor in it. There is that subtle oh, yeah. humor throughout. Yeah, which is really good. Um, there, uh, of course. So Stephen is the other half of this mm-hmm. pair, you Captain Jack and Stephen. Now I love Paul Bettany, but in the book Stephen Matterin is short and slight. <laughs> Paul Bettany, right. I think, is taller than Russell Crowe. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a miscast. But apart from that, I, I really like the the Matterin of the books. Is I it doesn't really come out in the in this, but but the Matterin of the books, he is not a sailor. He's sort of picked up by Jack. Uh, on a whim in a sense to become he's a he's a physician an actual physician most ships of that era did not have in fact one of the sailors mentions it he's no surgeon and by the at the time a ship surgeon was a guy who knew how to wield the saw when necessary you know mm-hmm. no he's a real doctor a real physician and uh but he's also um a rebel who hates the british <laughs> the british crown um is a mm-hmm. uh, uh a a loyal a, a spanish not a Spanish, a Castilian loyalist, could, right? I, yeah, I was going to say he's he's an actual anarchist. Like this is right. a, this is an an actual in serious in all seriousness an anarchist because right. the the region that he is from uh, is an anarchist region of Spain, 
and they it's one of the only successful anarchies to ever have existed in <laughs> right. in actual reality so that that's his uh it's, it's he is a catalan through and through and that is that is his thing right and so he yeah he's an anti-royalist and but because uh spain is at war with england the enemy of my enemy is my friend but he he's mm-hmm. so he's half spanish but he's also or half Castilian, uh, uh, Catalan, sorry. But uh, he's also half Irish, which makes him hate the English even more, which makes it so deeply ironic that he's the doctor aboard a British Royal Naval vessel, which is just, which is awesome. But it's his friendship with Jack that helps that he overcomes that. But you see that tension in, in Stephen come out in the, Mm -hmm. in the movie, in the times when he, you know, he, you know, he gets angry about the, Jack pursuing the French vessel and especially in violation of his promise to 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 him to visit the Galapagos Islands and give him a chance to do what he loves, which is the naturalism. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so that's a uh, I love that relationship that that comes out in that. And we see who Stephen is. Also, um, one of the great scenes is when Stephen is trepanning the old sailor. Uh, so the old sailor gets injured. And so he has to remove part of his it was a trepanning was they would remove part of the skull to expose it to the air to relieve pressure, apparently, you know, mm-hmm. I guess. And uh, so he's doing this in the open air on the deck and all of the sailors are gathered around to see, to see this thing. <laughs> is, is that his skull? The doctor, I mean, is that his brains doctor? No, no, it's just some dried blood. That's his brains. brains. Ooh, it's like a medical auditorium, right? And he's uh, and he's just holding holding a medical uh, procedure for them to be able to watch. Yeah, very clearly modeled. Like the the scene was modeled on that. I think that that Mm -hmm. it was a clear uh, idea. So then again, um, with the with the humor when when the bosun comes by and and kicks them all out and says, get back to work. What are you doing? And then he turns around yeah. and looks himself. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Watching. Oh, <laughs> what's that? <laughs> so, um, so let's talk about Mr. Hollum, uh, the, the poor, uh, ill-fated Mr. Hollum from the beginning. He doesn't seem to know how he fits in, in this crew. He, so he's not very good at what he does. It's clear that being an officer and taking command, he doesn't know how to lead men. Um, at one point there's uh music, the, the men are, singing on deck singing spanish ladies and he starts singing along and they all stop and stare at him and if you don't understand anything about this world that they're in it looks weird like why are they being mean to him but it's an officer was did did not sing when the men with the men in their sea shanties that was not an officer thing to do Mm -hmm. there was a clear separation between officers and men uh the officers and sailors um Mm -hmm. so what i mean what do you think of of that just that first part there. I think it does a great job of like we were just talking about with showing so much without really showing a lot is that you get that whole, that whole like hierarchy on the ship in that one scene. Like you, you understand it completely. And I think that it it really sets his character up to be this odd man out where he doesn't really fit in with the officers because he's not, he's not really, doesn't have any really drive. And then he doesn't fit in with the men because he's an officer. Right. Right. And they they end up not really respecting him um, because he doesn't he doesn't command. He mm-hmm. doesn't know how to command. Uh, and they begin to think of him as a jinx. They think or they call him a Jonah, which is a nice biblical reference. Uh, you know, the story of Jonah and the whale. And it was Jonah was trying to escape from God's 
mission for him and sailed on a ship and a storm came up and they determined that that it was because of Jonah that God was punishing the ship. And so they threw him overboard and that saved the ship. And so they they look at him as a jinx. He's in, and if, as Stephen says, sailors, right, all the, from captain to the lowest seaman is are all superstitious guys, very superstitious. Mm -hmm. So and I think that uh, one of the other really neat things that they do here, too, is they show the relationship between uh, Jack and the crew and how much the crew respects him, uh, almost in juxtaposition to Hollem. And yeah, it's it's good because it, it sets up that difficulty. And then when when Jack calls him in to have the discussion with him later on about how to lead, uh, it hits home because you see that that Jack is the leader of all of these men, including the the midshipmen and the lieutenants. He's in charge of all of them. And right. they he doesn't lead just because he's the captain. He leads because they respect him. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can also see in that moment how Jack str is struggling to to teach Hollum. Like mm -hmm. Jack is a good captain and a good and, and is good at training. But if but there's a point at which he, he just can't get through to Hollum. Hollum just mm -hmm. doesn't get it no matter how he tries. And that's an interesting counterpoint to a lot of, you know, our culture today, which is, is if you just try hard enough, you'll be mm -hmm. successful. And it's like, you know what? Hollum will if given, you know, the, the not the rest of the events of the movie, but he say he survives. He would grow and become an old man as a midshipman. I think as Jack warns him, you can't be an old old midshipman your whole life. Like he just is this he's reached his ceiling. This is he's mm -hmm. not going to get any mm -hmm. better than this. And I think Jack kind of realizes it, doesn't really hold it against them. You know, he kind mm -hmm. of he's has sympathy for him, but doesn't understand him. And he's kind of other from Jack as well. He's not like Blakeney, who who has a long career ahead of him, apparently. Right. Well, and it's it's I think what, like what Jack ends up saying to him is it's an unfortunate matter. And that, that's yeah. like all he can come up with to end the conversation with him is it's an unfortunate matter. And it's like, oh, that's right. <laughs> that just fell dead right there. Yeah. That's like the uh, I'm not I'm not upset. I'm just disappointed line. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. So um, then they have the they're trying to get around the horn, the uh, the southern tip of of, of South America in uh, Tierra del Fuego. And they, they, it's the weather's notorious. It's just famously bad, and many ships have foundered there, and uh, they almost foundered. We can talk about that in a, in a bit, but uh, oh, I, I want to finish the bit with Hollum first, which is that um, they they finally get around. Then they and a man dies. They get on the you know to the Galapagos. The doctor gets shot. They blame Hollum as a bad is a bad luck. They get becalmed, and again they blame. You know, they, 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 the muttering begins. They're, they're, they're just sitting there, no wind. So they're just becalmed in the ocean. And that's a bad situation. They give a couple hundred men in this little boat with nothing to do except steam, literally <laughs> and figuratively. And at, at one point, he, he realizes, like, or he just decides, I can't, I, I am the, the jinx. I am the Jonah. And he's so, sort of at peace. Walks up on deck, says goodbye to Blake, and he picks up a cannonball and steps over the side. And as if to prove that they were all right all along, the very next day the wind comes up, and their mm -hmm. and and their luck is turned. And so, what do you? I mean, what do you think of like this whole progression for Hollum? His, I mean, because it's a tragic, it's tragedy, 
and yet there's a bit of relief on the part of a, a lot of people after he's gone. Like, well, at least we don't have to deal with it anymore. I'm really sad he's gone, but you know, we we've lost the Jonah, and now we're sa- kind of saved. Uh, what do you what do you think? I like that it shows like the the reality of like interpersonal relationships. Like, you know, you're on this ship and you're with these people in close quarters for months and months. Like, even if something bad happens to like a particular person who you're not fond of, like, I feel like this is even though it's not the most prettiest side of human nature, this is like, this is how people handle those things a lot of the time. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, And, and that, that isolation, um, that this is one of the things that the books are so good at, at capturing these men being away from everything, mm-hmm. uh, for months, sometimes even years on end. And they go a little stir crazy, uh, you know, and, and that's, especially with the becalming I and mean, there's some there's some scenes in the book where they they actually uh um haul a man for uh during one of the becalmings just to keep the crew from kind of mutinying they take a man tie him to to ropes and then run him under the ship kill haul him so they, yeah just yeah. pull him all the way under the ship and then back up on the end and um and that's just it's a it's a tradition yeah that they right. that they go through which is horrible because if you know anything about these ships they have barnacles all over the bottom of them so it's absolutely oh, yeah. horrifying knowing yes. what, oh. what's happening to that poor guy uh but yeah the, the what they had to go through you know and, and there's a point in the in the movie where they even have like um Matron and Aubrey discussing the grog and whether or not he, she sh- you know, whether or not Aubrey should stop giving the grog to the men. And Aubrey's like, what do you, what do you think's going to happen if I take away the grog? The only thing that these guys are actually enjoying on this ship. Yeah. <laughs> right. What do you going to happen to them? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And the, in fact, there's that, that discussion between Matter and, and, and uh, Aubrey, it, you know, and, and Matter is like, is opposed to the harsh discipline because a sailor uh, disrespects Hollem, you know, hits him as he walks by. And that's just, rank insubordination it just cannot be invited and and even though it's a sailor everybody loves on board and who jack has sympathy for he has to be lashed Mm -hmm. and jack is mad that hollem didn't say anything like he hit the the guy hits hollem and walks by and hollem says nothing it's jack who has to clap that man in irons uh and so steven goes to jack's like no you can't do this this is you know this harsh discipline the ward he criticizes the punishment and and Jack just basically says, men must be governed. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you can, you mm-hmm. can't, you know, your anarchist ideals are fine for you, but they will not work in in this situation. This human nature is human nature. And this would dissolve into savagery aboard this ship if men were not governed harshly under these conditions. Um, so, which was, I thought it was a great speech. I thought it was a, a great moment in that. Right. Um, and I like that Matterin is kind of like, He's he's Jack's friend, but he's also his foil in his ideals. Like they're very yeah. polar opposites in what they actually believe. And it's nice to see that those like that thought, like, is this discipline really like the most on the up and up the way we should be treating people? Like truly, like maybe not, but you understand just the way the characters are and the like these conversations they have, why this is necessary to maintain a functioning ship. Mm. And and you don't get to see it in this movie. You, you understand it, I think, by the end of the movie. You really do. You, you feel like these guys know and respect uh, Aubrey. But uh, he is a great captain. Yeah. Very sympathetic. Incredibly uh, goes very far out of his way for his men. Mm-hmm. And so for him to 
call the lash that's a big deal like it's a it's not something that he enjoys doing and you right. definitely get that sense in the books and you see in the movies that he doesn't want to do it as, mm-hmm. as well but there are much worse uh conditions for the oh, yeah. under yeah for yes. sure yeah, and I like them. I like how it juxtaposes the way he treats the men with the way uh, Holmes does. Is because even though the guy ends up getting lashed by him, he still respects Aubrey because he is a strong leader. He doesn't respect weakness. Yes, mm-hmm. and and Holmes just doesn't understand the leadership required. He says, "I tried to make friends with them. They don't. They they don't want to be your friend. You are not their friend. You know." Mm-hmm. And so he just mm-hmm. doesn't understand that relationship. Um. Oh, I do want to highlight something Jack says after Hollum's death and they have a simple service. He's he's going to read from the Bible and it turns out it's the Jonah passage. Like, I'm not going to read that. Uh, but he says the simple truth is not all of us become the man we once hoped we might be, but we are all God's creatures. And I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, what a simple and beautiful truth where he, in that moment, you know, to, he says to all these people who had been calling him a Jonah and, and perhaps to himself who thought of him Hollem as the Jonah, no matter what he might have been and what he failed to become that we would respect, he's still a, a son of God mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. in that moment and was beloved of God. What a, I mean, that's another thing I love about this movie is we get moments like this, which are true to the time and true to how people of that era would, would believe and how people, some people today still believe. I like that. And on that, that same kind of note i like that this movie does not try to make any sort of political societal like statement of like what is going on like it's not are the french the bad guys or are the english the good guys it's just mm-hmm. this is these are the characters this is the situation they're in this is what is going on i like that there's right. no like no commentary coming into it mm-hmm. there's no 21st century ideology being imposed upon this movie exactly upon this story yeah no i agree that's not true of most things today mm-hmm Except for one, which was really brilliant. And I liked the way they did it when they were talking about the evolution issue and they addressed yeah. it with um, with Blakeney and uh, and Matron and, and yeah. Matron says, well, of course, God is the one that causes them to change. But we I wonder if they might also change themselves, you know, like, yeah, because evolution's not a thing. And, and since they're going through the Galapagos and that's, you know, Darwin's big thing that yeah. it's a really appropriate to bring that up at this moment. Right. Yeah. Did God make them change? Blakeney says. And then in Madden says, oh, yes. He doesn't say maybe. He says yes. But did they also change themselves? And it, it that is a nuanced approach. Mm-hmm. That is a it's right. really nice, nicely done. Nicely done. Um, so I wanted to go back a little to that, that uh, to a couple of really nice moments. I loved the the night chase when the the ship, the French ship got behind them and was chasing them. And it's it's a bigger, faster ship than they are so it's gonna catch them and they just need to make it to nightfall and once they make it to nightfall they create this decoy which i thought was brilliant i love it and so it's basically some barrels with a cross tree and a sail on it and lights in the shape of the lights on the rear of the surprise and then they send the uh the young midshipman down to uh, his first command quote unquote his first command yeah <laughs> yeah and uh they have him like they they douse the light and reveal the light on the decoy at the same time, you know, very cleverly and then send it off sailing in one direction while they sail in the other. And it was just, it, 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 another one of those times where it highlights the brilliance of, of Maturin, I'm sorry, of Aubrey's uh, strategic mind, his abilities as, as a sea captain. This is what makes Jack so great is he's so smart about these things and, mm-hmm. and then brings his ship over hundreds of miles in the, you know, at night, 
right up behind the other ship. Like no GPS, no. He was dead reckoning it right into behind the other ship. And I just, mm-hmm. it was really awesome. I love that scene. And and uh, you get to see him do some of that. I love the way that they show him doing some of those calculations where he's like moving his fingers and, and yes. on the map to show that he's calculating how far the ship's gone and where they've gotten to. It's it's really neat to see all of the uh, all of the stuff that builds into what one of these naval captains would have been like. And right. And it comes out on the screen so well. Yes, it does. Um, another moment that really highlights him as a captain of his men. Uh, is in the storm around the horn when uh, I, I can't remember all of the, the sailors, but I think it was Watney who had been on the uh, mm-hmm. on in the in the rigging, and when the when the topsails went over and he got went overboard with it, and he's he's stuck. The the he wants to save this man, like he want he doesn't want to lose a single man, not to sea to battle that happens, but not at sea like this, and he wants to to bring him in and. The the but the sails are still attached to the you know the mast is still attached to the ship by the rigging and it's become a sea anchor and it's going to drag the ship sideways and sink her and lose everybody lose the ship and so he has to take this moment where he has to cut cut it free and he does it himself but he also makes the guy's friend his I think his cousin I think it was mm-hmm. do it with him they did it together like I'm not making you do like I'm going to put myself through this just as much as you're going to go through this. You know, we're going to be the ones to do it, you know, and I hate to do it. You hate to do it, but we have to. And in this, you'll understand why. And it just without a word conveys all of this in this one scene. And again, just a masterful piece of direction there. I love mm-hmm. that that bit of scene. Um, so yeah, sacrificing the man to save the ship. So they do go to the Galapagos because that's where the British whaling fleet is. And it makes a tasty target. Uh, and Stephen gets to go go gaga over the bizarre species that are there. And you, you get this idea. Again, they don't spell it out. But if Stephen really had been able to gather all these species and bring them back, Stephen would be Darwin. Like Dar- right. Charles Darwin would have been superseded by Stephen Matterin, in, mm-hmm. you know, in, if, if that were a real person. So uh, and so they have the like these scenes where he's seeing all these crazy creatures. No, lizards don't swim. That one does. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and stuff like that. So it was just really a great scene. And then, but then Steven gets shot. So, so Steven and Jack argue over, over Jack's broken promise. We have to chase the ship. It's our duty. This is a, a, a British naval uh, warship. We have a duty to chase this, this French vessel. Um, and Steven, you know, kind of doesn't get it. And they, ha- they have a falling out. But then when Stephen is shot accidentally by one of the Marines, who doesn't use good muzzle discipline, <laughs> like, that man should have been brought up in charges. Uh, Jack turns away from chasing the French ship. He's just almost got it. But he has to turn away because they got to bring Stephen to dry land in order to do a successful operation to get the bullet out. Because and, the surgeon's mate can't do it on the, on the rolling boat. No, no, he has no idea what he's <laughs> And in fact, can't do it on the dry land either. And Stephen has to operate on himself, which is a an amazing scene. Like yeah. just mm-hmm. the idea of no anesthesia. And he's like, okay, retract the rib. And I'm I'm in pain watching it going, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. that must yep. hurt so much. I also like um with that scene, like you don't uh 
they don't show like any of like the actual surgery. Like you get little glimpses of it, but the most of the shot is just on his face as he's doing that. And you yeah. get everything you need to know just from that, like how awful that must have been. And the reactions of like the surgeon's mate and mm-hmm. Jack. Yeah. Like Jack is there. He he's got like I can do this. So all I've I've seen plenty of wounds, you know, uh, in my my you know, lifetime of service in the in the Navy. And and he and you can see on his face is like, oh, yee, ah, oh, that's not good. You know, that sort of thing. Um, that's uh, that's an experience you won't soon forget. And and that uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people uh, of the men on board the ship respect Stephen uh, even more after that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Stephen wants to thank Jack. And I love the understated nature of it. He's like, oh, what? You know, Jack, I, I can never repay you. And he's like. Oh, just name a shrub after me. Something prickly and hard to eradicate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was good. Which now in the books, that, I think, I think Stephen actually discovers something in one of the books and names it after Aubrey. Was it in, the tortoise? Very similar. Yeah. I, I, I think it might have been. Yeah. Yeah. Tortola Aubriensis or something like that. Yeah. He, which is what he says he will do in the, in the movie. So now that they're, they're back on the land and, and Stephen has to recuperate, they decide to take a break and, and spend some time there. And so Stephen does get a chance to go across the island and make some collections with Blakeney and his, uh, his servant. I, I don't, I don't remember his name, this big, big dude carrying everything. And they get to the other side. It's not a very big island, not very wide. And so Stephen sees, the French ship in the harbor. And there's this great moment on Paul Bettany's face where you, you look, you see him looking and he, and you really get the sense. I could just turn around and say nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like he, he, the, the, there's that clear idea on his face. And then he, in, within a second, he's like, but no, I have to do this. This is what, this That's is my, duty, my friend. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And they have to drop everything and carry, carry Steven back. And I like uh, at that part where they put all the cages down with all the animals and he specifically requests to open up the cages so they're not stuck right. there. Right, right. To not, not kill them all. Yeah, that yeah. is a, that was good. And so they, they the chase is on again. They disguise, they, they decide that they can't catch the Archeron. They, they, they can't beat them in a fair fight, so to speak. So they decide to disguise themselves as a tasty prize, as a as a whaler. And I love that scene where they're they're disguising the ship and there's one point where they're up the, all the officers are put on these like whaler, you know, uh, clothes. And, um, Jack says to them all, uh, no more, no more saluting, no more sirs. No, you know, no, no <laughs> naval discipline, men. And they said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> and he just, and he just kind of, kind of just like, ah, <laughs> was, that was, a, that was funny. That was a good one. Yeah. Well, um, and I, I really like in that, too, because I, I think that, you know, you can say, oh, well, that's not a fair fight. But but they do a couple of things here that are really good uh, for, for that whole naval concept, because subterfuge like this was very common. It was actually really a, a oh, large yeah. part of naval battles where you would run up an, a flag that would uh, keep someone away for whatever reason or, you know, like a plague flag would keep people from coming at you. Right. Uh, and or you would run up uh, the flag of an opponent's uh, nation to to fool them into thinking that you were uh, part of that. And but one one thing that Aubrey does before he launches the attack is he has the men raise the colors. They all take off their uh, cloaks to reveal who they are. They raise yep. the colors and then they commence the attack. Right. Which 
it's not enough time for the French vessel to get away, but <laughs> it's it's at least giving them a heads up. Hey, we're not right. who you think we were. Yes, it gives them a chance, a small chance, but it gives them a chance. Yes, the, they do fire no, when the enemy knowing who they are. It, it's a it's a great battle. I mean, it's really, I mean, the brutality of of naval warfare at the time was just like I, mean, I mentioned it early on. It's just. It was so brutal, like a cannonball's just flying everywhere. And it's not just a cannonball. When a cannonball hits the wood of the ship, the ship, that oak splinters into these missiles. It's like flechettes mm-hmm. flying everywhere. I mean, it was brutal. Uh, you know, the, the, the scuppers flowed with blood. In fact, they showed that in one, at one point. And, and then they have to uh, board the, uh, the enemy vessel. They grapple and board. And, uh, you know, it's sword play and pistols and bashing people. I mean, it was it, it was quite a scene that they filmed there. I have to say, yeah, yes. pretty wild. The grenades, man, the grenades were oh. awesome. <laughs> yeah, dropping the grenades down on uh, into the, in the decks on down below, uh, and then mm-hmm. Stephen uh, ends up getting in the battle. That was kind of awesome. He gets into sword some sword play, yeah. with with uh, Blakeney. Which is horrible. It's so funny because he's fencing. Like it's really like yeah. that scene is really incredible. As as a uh, a person who knows swordplay, what you're watching there is the difference between someone who theoretically knows how to fight with a blade and yeah. a bunch of people that know how to fight with a blade. Yes, <laughs> and, and he's he's doing all the fencing moves, and they're all actually like piling in on him and pushing <laughs> pushing back against him and everything. And right. it was it was really well done because you could actually see like even even if you don't know what's going on. You you could see that he doesn't really know what he's doing. And if you know what's going on, you're like, oh, he's he's totally doing the theoretical thing right <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. He's totally like he's on a in a competition as opposed to fighting for his life. Yeah. Exactly. The, the big difference. I like how you see the inefficiencies of like early muskets and stuff. Like when they're getting prepared, yeah. like they have like barrels of muskets and each one is essentially single use. And like once once the muskets are gone, it's back to swords. Like so you right. not can use his guns for very long. Well, and there's a reason the pistol grips were shaped the way they were, like a mm-hmm. like they sort of bulb out on the end, because you'd flip it around your hand and it became a club. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what that's it's one shot and then now it's a club. <clears throat> and uh, speaking of you know the primitive time, they had to the reason that Stephen was fighting was because uh, Blakeney, who had been given command of the surprise during the boarding, saw the French were aim, starting to aim their cannons at the side of the surprise, which were sinker while they, mm-hmm. they were trying to take the ship so they end up you know blowing a hole in the side of her and then boarding there and so it's blakeney and the surgeon's mate and steven and like they're they uh they throw a bucket of water onto one of the cannons to douse the fuse and then the surgeon's mate ends up putting his hand in the flintlock <laughs> to prevent it from the cannon from firing which was painful but but uh brilliant yeah <laughs> that was a good move so that yeah that was that that was such a, a good move and then at the end of the battle, the the you know a, a an action to take a ship ends when the captain surrenders it, the ship or whoever is in command. And so Jack ends up going down into the the ship's uh, the the sick bay of the French ship. <clears throat> he sees a guy in the French captain's outfit, and we haven't seen the French captain before. He sees him laid out there, and the man he assumes to be the uh, the ship's uh, doctor hands him the captain's sword, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and go off. And we find out later once the once Pullings has taken the Archeron off to become a prize somewhere, Steven sort of reveals in an offhand, like, oh, yes, too bad the ship's doctor died. What do you mean? Like, I talked to him. No, no, he died weeks ago. Yeah. Turns out that was the captain. I just, that was, and then 
it, it, that at that moment, Jack is both horrified and also delighted because I, I you know, this yeah. guy is just so uh, such a great enemy to, to me, you know, and it just kind of sums it up right there. That that whole uh, emotion in him. So I just kind of love that 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 sequence. Yeah, there is one part uh, near the end, um, speaking of the captain, that I really like because you don't see really the French are not characters in this movie for the yes. most part. They're just the unseen menace. But there's a small bit of humanity that you get at the end when Jack is going through his cabin and you see his French horn is on the floor and his music's on the floor. And so mm-hmm. right. you see that he gets that connection. Like there's still that that connection there between them. Yes. The the, the French captain also enjoys music and playing yeah. music. And you kind of get the feeling that maybe if the French captain you know, had survived, well, he did survive, but if he knew he had survived and had taken him captive, there might be the three of them playing music in Jack's quarters, right. you know, on the long sea voyage night. Um, it would be given that it was a more civilized era when the way you treated mm-hmm. your enemies, for sure. Mm-hmm. It, there was there was a lack of othering that was really interesting because, yes. you know, when they're talking about the combat, it's always the ship that they're talking about. They're talking about her, the the Acheron. They're, they're talking about that as a whole. And mm-hmm. it's not until that moment where they board and actually have to fight that they are confronting an enemy that's another human. And at that point, it's just self-defense and trying right. to complete the mission. Survive. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then once they do survive, there's even that, that they, they take prisoners and they're going to take those prisoners back and probably ransom them when they get them back along with the prize. Right. Right. And prisoners are treated with, you know, with respect. They're especially officers treat other officers mm-hmm. respectfully and, um, you like even if you're kept captive on land, you were given parole, which you could meant you could walk around town and you know live like a regular life. You just you've agreed I'm not going to try to escape, and and that sort of thing. You've given your word. Um, right. Yeah, it was a very different a different time. So uh, obviously, a lot of the sailors die. The shipmaster gets killed, uh, Alan. Um, the newly minted lieutenant. Uh, sorry with the C. Kim Camley, I forget his name, but one of the uh, midshipman who had been just promoted dies and then they have a funeral service they recite the the lord's prayer and then jack says this prayer which i thought was really awesome i'm gonna and i wrote it down he says uh we therefore commit their bodies to the deep to be turned into corruption looking for the resurrection of the body when the sea shall give up her dead and the life of the world to come through our lord jesus christ amen which is actually a prayer that you hear today when they do a a burial at sea as well and uh, i just thought again another moment where the men of faith you know these mm-hmm. were men of faith who who had a, a belief and and I, and I give credit to the filmmakers for portraying their their faith as it was it's really really nice moment so is there any other things we wanted to you guys wanted to mention that i didn't bring up uh, here i wanted to talk about the really profound moment at the end that you kind of get unless you understand what exactly is happening here um the Akron's a much better ship than yeah. the Surprise. It, mm-hmm. it is a, a vastly superior ship to the Surprise. And so when when Aubrey opts to let Pullings take that ship back as prize, he's doing two things. First off, he's solidifying his position as captain of of the Surprise. Like mm-hmm. he, that's his that's his ship, and he is telling his men they did a fantastic job. And is well with he's well within his rights to take the Acheron back, and that would probably promote him to captain of the Acheron almost immediately. Right on getting it back, but instead he sends pullings because that will 
Pullings won't become captain of the Akron, but he will become captain. He'll get a captaincy by taking that prize back and, right. and getting it back. To, and that's an incredible thing. Like having, like trying to explain that to my kids is, is like, this is a really big moment where he is saying, you have done such a good job as my lieutenant. I want you to be a captain. I think you're going to make a fantastic captain. You go get on the big ship. And that's why Pullings is surprised initially when that happens, because what Pullings is expecting to happen at that point is that, that Aubrey's going to go, captain the Akron back as prize and then he's going to give the temporary captaincy over to pullings of this uh, of this one and he doesn't so it's a big deal like and you you get that in the books you get a lot you understand kind of the, the hierarchy of where uh what a lieutenant is and why it's important that a lieutenant be given a, an opportunity like that mm. and what a magnanimous thing it is that that Aubrey's doing so yeah, yeah. I, I love that kind of stuff and Pullings gets to be captain of the Acheron for a long time. That's going to be months before they get back. I mean, he's yeah. you get like you said, and he, yeah, it really does. He he once he's made a you know captain of the Acheron, it's not like a necessary that he become. I mean, there's plenty of reasons why the the, the ministry, the admiralty back in in uh, in England could you know they can sometimes say no. But if Pullings is at all a good officer and has at all time in service, which he probably does, given you know. The, the implications yeah he's he's captain and he'll be given a ship and the acheron that's how they did it back then too like with a when a warship was captured it was made into your you know it was a french mm-hmm. ship was made a british ship and, right. and it was you know this is now her majesty's ship um there was no uh it would be kind of funny if we did that today we capture like a chinese frigate and made it a an american frigate that'd be a weird thing anyway um yeah, so the, yeah, that's actually a really good point. Yeah, the, the, it was a big deal what he did for Pullings in that moment, mm-hmm. um, and then everyone, all the officers below Pullings, which at that point was it Blakeney was the only one left, the only no, there was, no, there, there was, was some least, younger guys. There, there was yeah. at least the second lieutenant, and mm-hmm. so Blakeney yeah. would have been lieutenant two. Yeah, and then there were a couple of the, younger kids who were midshipmen yeah. as well mm-hmm. that were there uh, that they showed. Yeah, that's the thing is, is they, they didn't show all of them. They didn't all have speaking parts. But a ship like that would have had a lot of midshipmen kind of for that reason. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> death and promotion and yeah, that sort of thing. And just uh, kid, kids like Blakeney, you know, he's he's going to have to go home and make a case for why he should be able to keep sailing after he's lost an arm. Too. Right. Right. He's a, he doesn't need to be. He doesn't need to be sailing yeah. at all. He's a, a Lord's son. So. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it, probably second son which is why he's at sea right. or second or third but um the other thing you mentioned like jack's position on surprise surprise was his ship like he loved surprise uh it was mm-hmm. it was an older ship not old <laughs> seasoned and there's a, that great exchange she's in her prime <laughs> she's in her prime but you know he he served on that ship was it like at one point they show this was when captain jack carved his initials as a midshipman into the crow's nest you know the that this is a ship that he's connected to, that he's been mm-hmm. on the decks of for so long. Um, so that that was a nice that was a nice moment where he he doesn't want to leave surprise at this point. So but a couple uh, of other things watching yeah. watching this with my kids, it was really cool because they had a lot of really interesting questions. So uh, you know, the the sextant, they wanted to know about how the sextant was working and how that was them able to tell time from the sextant and someone calling noon and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The the hourglass always shifting. They want they we were talking about the hourglass the always watch. shifting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then my daughter was like, 
wait a minute are you serious they count knots that's where knots comes from oh yes <laughs> we're counting the speed of the ship and i was like yeah that's actually how this this how these terms came to be and how we yep. use them now is because of that when they were doing it six fathoms by the by the keel shells and shells you know like the see mm. shells and saying uh, yeah i love that they ver- the, the the real true aspects of the nautical uh the seamanship there um, one of my favorite jokes from the series of books, by the way, is how Jack loves that there's the watch standing system is a 24 hour like they, they stand watch. But one of the watches is short is it is a short watch. So what is it? Six, six on, six off, six on, six off and then two, uh, because that way no, no one watch has to stand. You know, it, it rotates the watches around, you know, each day. Anyway, the the one at the short watch is called the dog watch because it's curtailed. <laughs> yep. I just I crack up every time. I tell my I, I make that joke to my kids all the time. And like, what are you talking about? They have to see the movie. Read the book. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, I, I do love it's that. Like, it's like the weevils. That's like the weevils joke. <laughs> yes, from, yeah. The lesser of two weevils. Oh, it, it, what was it? Uh, a man would as soon as pick a pocket as make a pun. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> yeah, so there was that was great. Uh how about you, Jack? Any other uh notes on this? Um not really. I think I've said everything I want to say. Just it's a fantastic movie and I wish that more movies like this were made where you get these awesome stories, they're historical dramas, and they are not being they're not having an overlay of twenty first century thinking put upon them. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree. Complete agreement. Uh one little note, uh or two n- notes. First the movie was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including Best Film and Best Director. Uh, but because it came out in the same year that Lord of the Rings Return of the King did, it lost against it. Uh, it only it won Best Cinematography, which hands down, yep, and Best Sound Editing, which uh, the sound was, was good in this. Mm. Uh, the other note is, according to Wikipedia, in June 2021, a prequel film was announced to be in active development, maybe telling the story of how Jack and Steven meet. Hmm, now, interesting. that's probably not going to be Peter Ware directing it. So, or Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany. I mean, they're young looking, but I don't think they could, <laughs> they could be like, shave yeah. a decade off of that. They're going to have to recast. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I, I want. I would, like I said, I would love to be more Aubrey Matterin, but it has to be done right. That's for It'd sure. Be Chris Pratt and Tom Holland. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, like you know. I'm I'm in. That's 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 not bad. <laughs> that isn't bad. I could I could perhaps do it. Chris Pratt's a little comic, a little too comic. I wanted a little more seriousness out of him, but um, yeah, I, we should we should do some fan casting for the uh, the the movie. We'll see. Yes, we prequels. <laughs> All right, awesome. All right, I think that should wrap it up for this time. Uh, as much as I want to keep talking about Master and Commander <laughs> again. We do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of movies and TV shows, including Nancy H., Marie M., Sam E., Vincent H., and Jorge C. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of movies and TV shows and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear what you think of Master and Commander, Far Side of the World. You can let us know by commenting on the show posting at sqpn.com slash secrets or the StarQuest Facebook page or send an email to secrets at sqpn.com. Until next time, Jack Barazzini, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Master and Commander. Thanks, Tom. 
And Thomas Sinero, thank you as well. It's been a pleasure. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Movies and TV shows on StarQuest. <laughs>